a lovely thing sometimes just to feel the breath in the body, isn't it? Sometimes it's just so simply joyful. So hello everybody, it's nice to see you. (laughs) Tonight, uh, I'll be talking about the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes um, that we've been offering over these last several days. And uh, we'll spend a little bit more time tonight on two of them. Um, I'd like to start, though, with reading to you the Metta Sutta. This is from the Buddha. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. The Buddha also said, I thought I put a marker in it. Hmm. Abandon what is unskillful. One can abandon the unskillful, If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If this abandoning of the unskillful would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as it brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unskillful. Cultivate the good. One can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation were to bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to do it. 
But as this cultivation brings benefit and happiness, I say, cultivate the good. So depending on our state of mind, we can take that as inspiration, or we might find ourselves in some fear in relationship to that. You know, I don't know, can I do that? Is that possible? It is said that a skillful way of living is to practice these Brahma-viharas as often as possible. The four Brahma-viharas, and Brahma-vihara is the, the Pali word, and it means divine home, divine abiding. So the four are loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy or appreciative joy, which is uh, what Rina expounded upon last night in her talk, and equanimity. It is said that the wise person always dwells in one of, or the other of these abidings. And there are benefits. There are benefits. I'd like to read them to you. There are 11 of them. As we know, there are many lists in um, Buddhism. And here's 11 benefits to practicing loving kindness compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. One, you will sleep easily. Two, you will wake easily. Three, you will have pleasant dreams. Four, people will love you. Five, devas or celestial beings and animals will love you. Six, devas will protect you. Seven, external dangers like poisons, weapons, and fire will not harm you. Eight, your face will be radiant. Nine, your mind will be serene. Ten, you will die unconfused. Eleven, you will be reborn in happy realms. It's from the Vishuddhimagga. So the Buddha also said, this is high standard. If bandits seize you, tie you up, and saw off your arms and legs with a two-handled saw, should any thought of animosity arise in your consciousness, then you are not following my teaching. (laughs) So we're all there, right? (laughs) When I was jotting this down, what came to my mind was... um, you know, getting ready for the talk. There's, there's, we have like these three rooms down there where the teachers meet, and our arena and I have the, well, two rooms that you've been meeting in um, for the interviews, and then there's a third room that has like the computer and you know books and tea and um, little um, fruit and nuts and. So in the other group, you know, they're actually they're kind of that's their pod. That's where they're meeting, but we're allowed to go in and use it. So, which has been, you know, really easy, just an easy, easy flow. And um, <laughs> so I was getting the talk ready, and I, I wanted to um, go in and use the computer. And I opened the door, and, you know, they were sitting there, and I just watched, just, you know, you know anger arise in my mind. Just, like, all of a sudden, I didn't like Martin. <laughs> 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 he really is funny. 
funny. It really is funny when you can just see it in your mind. You know, it just it would just rose up. It's like wow. And I'm preparing this talk in loving kindness. <laughs> you know, and it was it's so interesting to notice it because it arose out of wanting that room. You see that? So I wanted that room. So there's something in my way. Happened to be a human being who, in fact, actually wasn't in my way. It was fine with him that I could come in the room. Um, that just you know, this feeling of, of dislike. And it's such a powerful thing to investigate in our practice when that happens. You know, particularly retreat, because you get to see it, like, so clearly. You know, and it, it is funny. It's like, if you notice, like, when you're in the line in the dining hall or someone just, you know, they don't even know that you're there and they happen to move in front of you, you want to kill them. You know, it's just, you can feel the rage come up. And it, so what is that? You know, ultimately, it's a purification because if you actually opened your mouth to that person, there probably would be a, a kind exchange. Um, but just to see that, you know, I, I keep saying it's not me, it's not mine, but it really is true. It's just to see that, oh, wow, that arose in the mind. Um, you know, I wasn't planning that to happen. It arose in the mind. It's out of causes and conditions, meaning, you know, I wanted something. And that, in my mind, appeared to be in my way. But what followed right after the seeing of the anger was actually this wish of loving-kindness for myself. And I'll tell you why. And that's how, a lot how I've worked with metta practice. So what happens when we get agitated is our nervous system responds. You know, can you feel that? You know, when you get a little agitated, or even a lot agitated, the whole body responds. So the first place is to is to really, for me, it's been a useful practice to just send some loving kindness to that agitated body. Just simply, like not, okay, I'm going to sit down and say phrases to myself. It's just in the moment. It's okay. That's the loving kindness. And the wisdom, actually. It's okay. You know, it's there and it's gone in a flutter. And while that may seem kind of benign, it's actually a practice that really reinforces our capacity, our strength for times when, it, when it's much stickier, when, it, when it's not so easy to let go. Because there are plenty of times like that, you know, for all of us. If it weren't possible, I wouldn't ask you. The Buddha taught that the practices of loving kindness are an antidote to fear. So, in times when you know there is a lot of agitation and fear, it's a wonderful practice to do for oneself. Um, when I was uh, a number of years ago, um, my cat Meridian, who I had from when I was 20 years old. She was 17, so I was in my mid-30s. It was actually the night before I was going to go on a retreat. And, um, you know, she was obviously an elderly being, and um, she'd been an outdoor cat her whole life. And somehow, oh, when I moved to this area with my partner, it had some woods in the area, and so we decided to keep the cats in at night, you know, because of the animals. And for some reason, she got out at night. 
And um, she used to sleep, like, right at the top of my head, you know, like, right, pretty comforting. And I woke up in the morning, and she wasn't there. Um, And I said to my partner, Judith, I said, you know, where's Meridian? And she said, oh, I let her out last night. And for some reason, I don't know why, but I just just knew I was never going to see her again. I just, something just... um, And actually, you know, unfortunately, that was the truth. Um, So... I think maybe she was got taken by an animal. I don't. I don't really know. But why I'm telling you this story is that I called a friend of mine who actually, really, she isn't a. She doesn't do formal Buddhist practice at all. She just. She just knows that I practice, and I was very upset. And um, she said, "Have you have you done any loving kindness, you know, for yourself and for Meridian?" I said, oh, "I didn't even think of it." No, because I was so upset. And actually, the upset was, it wasn't grief, it was anxiety. It was just this profound loss that in my mind, I just, I, I felt like I couldn't bear. I couldn't, I couldn't be without her. I couldn't face what was true, what was happening. And that suggestion was such a gift because I just laid in bed and you know, I started to just send some phrases to my own heart. You know, just may you be safe and protected, and um, some phrases of loving kindness, and and then I was able to send them to my my sweet kitty wherever she was. Um, just and that was so calming. I mean, it really calmed the agitation. It didn't change the circumstance of her loss, but it really changed my heart and my relationship to it. Yes, I then went on to, for a week-long retreat, and I will say, I learned so much about grief in that retreat because, um, I, you know, the first sitting—it was a seven-day retreat. The first maybe half a day, um, my mind was, you know, really focused, and there was a lot of mindfulness. And then the rest of the six days, complete and total anxiety. That's what I was sitting with. Just, you know, that was the practice. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't you know, asking for it, but that was the response to this loss. And it was a great teaching about grief, about the different faces of grief. So these states of mind of loving-kindness, um, I, I just had the good fortune for my friend to remind me at that time, um, they're not necessarily easy to maintain. It really takes a courageous heart to, to remain in a state of loving-kindness or to, to, to incline our minds towards loving-kindness in the face of life, in the face of challenging situations. And these, these Brahma-viharas, these divine abodes, actually, in order for them to have true value, they, they must be universal. They, they're not... So, you know, sometimes... I can remember going into a teacher on retreat and saying, well, you know, I feel funny sending loving kindness to myself. It feels so self-centered. And, you know, uh, it was Joseph, I can't remember which teacher, but I worked a lot with Joseph Goldstein, um, said, you know, when you send loving kindness to yourself, you're sending it to everybody, you know, because we're not separate. So if you happen to be someone who it comes easier to send it to yourself, um, by all means, continue, because it is of benefit to all beings. 
And if you happen to be someone who it's difficult, um, stay with it. And you might also, you know, shift to uh, an easier being, like Arena brought up the benefactor or someone who's helped us. Or for some people, it's their pets, you know, or, or their children, you know, or a, a little, you know, the turkeys outside, you know. So this universal love is the gateway to wisdom, and vice versa. True wisdom is the gateway to universal love. In fact, they're not separate, even though they're taught in different ways. There's the loving-kindness practices, and there's uh, insight meditation, there's mindfulness practice. Um, The Dharma is often described as a winged bird, One wing is compassion, the other is wisdom. The bird would not be without both. They are completely interdependent on each other. In fact, they're not separate from each other. One leads to the other. From Sri Nisargata, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. So within that flow, many of us, as I said, have a hard time arousing genuinely loving kindness. Um, some say that if, if one can't have true compassion and love for oneself, then one won't genuinely have those feelings for others in a meaningful way. I don't know about that, but that is said. However, if you have it for yourself, you will not stop there. Now here's what the Buddha said. You can travel the world over and you will find no other more worthy than love than yourself. Upon seeing this, whom can you harm? Whom can you harm? Because that understanding that there is no one more worthy than our love. We understand that it's the same for everyone else, that we're all in this together. We're not separate. You know, there's that paradox where there's no other ta, you know. There's no other Jill like this Jill. You know, there's no other of any other of you. We all have our completely unique and exquisite manifestation. And yet, you know, we are all subject to the vicissitudes of life, no matter what our specifics are in our life. We're all subject to joy and sorrow and loss and gain and praise and blame. part of our human condition. And when we understand that, compassion naturally arises. And so, as Irina was sharing with us last night, 
so can appreciative joy because we understand that that joy also is conditional. It comes and goes. So there may be a time when my dear friend is experiencing some joys and successes in her life and I may be in a place of sorrow or loss or mm, self-judgment. It's actually a refuge to feel that appreciative joy, knowing that my dear friend on another day may be feeling some of the same things I'm feeling. And on another day, I may be feeling, experiencing joy and success, and to be mirrored by another with that appreciation. We all know what it's like when someone is genuinely happy for us in our success. It is, it's such a gift. It's like, talk about the nervous system. We can relax. It's okay. It's not bound by jealousy or envy which is the, considered the far enemy of appreciative joy. It's that false belief that um, if someone else has it, I can't. I mean, it may not come as an intellectual belief, but it's that false understanding of, of separation. The near enemy of appreciative joy is called over-exuberance. And I like that because that happens for me a lot, being kind of having a greedy type mind. I notice it just walking up here. Um, Because is this day amazing? Isn't it? I mean, it's just like, wow! And I didn't even get to take a walk, but just even coming from the, you know, the... um, my room to up here and the light and the green and the, the, the wind and it's just this, this incredible joy and I can watch my heart just like woo, woo you know? and you know I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that but then it's just little understanding yeah and this too this too will pass and you know appreciate the joy as it flies it's like uh, William Blake's poem She who binds herself to joy doth the winged life destroy. She who kisses it as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So it's 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 kind of neat to notice over exuberance. That's actually quite helpful because it can it just it, it 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 can be a grounding factor to just say, oh, okay. You know, noticing excitement, noticing pleasure, and understanding it's held with, with appreciation and knowing that too will pass like all things do. So uh, to go back to loving kindness, just to say to you the, the, uh, the near enemy of loving kindness is called attached love. And I'm actually not going to go into that too much, but now one quick way to describe it is that any anyone who has any kind of relationship at all, you you know that 
that there are times when, well, I gave you this, this, so I want that back from you, and all kind of versions of that, that um, there's nothing wrong with attachment. It just has, it has its own flavor of suffering in it. It's, it's called a near enemy because loving kindness is boundless, and it's indiscriminate. It's not towards one person or another person. It's, it's actually for all beings. It's understanding our interconnectedness, so it's not... Mm, prejudiced towards one or another. The far enemy of loving kindness is ill will. It's that speaks for itself. So to say a little bit more about compassion. So compassion is considered the um, the second Brahma Vihara. Compassion is not sentimentality. It's actually the heart's response to life. It's understanding that interconnectedness. It's considered the quivering of the heart in response to life. In response to life's 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. It's that deep understanding of our interconnectedness on this planet and our ability to respond Mary Oliver poem. It's called Red. Reminds me of Marina's bird story the other night. All the while I was teaching in the state of Virginia, I wanted to see Gray Fox. Finally, I found him. He was in the highway. He was singing his death song. I picked him up and carried him into a field while the cars kept coming. He showed me how he could ripple, how he could bleed. Goodbye, I said, to the light of his eye as the cars went by. Two mornings later, I found the other. She was in the highway. She was singing her death song. I picked her up and carried her into the field, where she rippled half of her gray, half of her red, while the cars kept coming, while the cars kept coming. Gray fox and gray fox. Red, red, red. Compassion, our capacity to respond to life, to the quivering of the heart. And each and every one of you have stories in your own life where you've responded out of compassionate care. It's the natural response of the heart. Uh, to share a story with you in terms of my own family, um, my, my parents are still alive. I'm, I'm sure several of you in here perhaps don't have your parents, and some do. My folks are still alive. My mother's uh, in her mid-80s. My father's going to be 90 at the end of this year. And um, several years ago, my dad uh, was actually trying to do too much at once and came out the back door and fell off a couple of steps, and uh, he, he fractured his hip. And, um, you know, it was... Uh, 
went to the hospital in, in an ambulance. And so he, he, you know, he got a pin put in his hip. He had very good care by the doctors. Of course, you know, he was, he was in the hospital for a while. So when I went to see him, um, th- there was a lot of agitation. You know, he was anxious. I think he was afraid. He really was afraid he was going to die when it initially happened. Even when the doctor was saying to him, you know, you're going to be fine. It was just the trauma was still in his being in terms of that loss of control and, um, you know, and, and wondering where that would lead in terms of his mobility. Um, so he, he was in his bed. And, you know, the, the bed trays that go across the bed when you're in the hospital? So he was basically explaining to me that that was his empire. You know, that that's, he could, you know, that's where he could place things, and his books were here, and this was there, um, you know, and the Kleenex here, and the glass of water there. My father used to be a, a manager um, at General Electric, so he, he ran his operations fairly tightly. And um, so my mother came in, and she'd come in with, like, some a, a bag full of, like, goodies and crackers and... Um, some you know cookies or whatever, and she put she put it in the middle of his empire, and you know he just freaked. He's like he's like no, put it there, you know, put it in the drawer, like right over here. And, he, and of course, and she is like she just you know the poor woman, she had just had it, you know, because she was obviously she was really scared and anxious too in terms of what happened. And, and you know when you you know when my, at least when my father's scared, he really goes into major trying to control things, which, you know, we can, some of us can probably relate to that. So she just walked out of the room. And um, <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, so I was just, and then I had to go off and teach a retreat. So I was discussing with it, my, with it, this issue with my dad later. And I could tell he felt really guilty. You know, he was just saying like, mama, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, and I was just trying to blah, 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 blah. And I said, um, you know, I don't. I don't usually interfere with the two. And I've learned wisely that the, their karma together is their karma. Um, and actually, I have a lot of compassion for for both of them because when my father complains about my mother, not only do I really relate to what he's saying about how my mother is, but I see the same things in myself that he's complaining about. You know, and then when she complains about him, right? Same thing. I see the things in her that I also find difficult, but then I see those things in myself too. So it's it's good fuel for compassion, actually, and equanimity. So I was basically on the phone with my dad, and um, I, you know, I could just feel how how much in pain he was, and something told me like to go further with him, to not just you know be empathic with what he was struggling with. And I said, you know, Dad, you know. Why don't you just call her and tell her you you know tell her you love her you know tell her you're sorry that you didn't mean you know you didn't mean uh, to you know be upset with her about the bag of cookies and then he's, he's quietly he said well could you call her and tell her <laughs> I said I don't think I can you know and I and as I was giving him the advice I really felt in my I said you know. Jeannie, just let go. He's probably not going to do this. It's okay that you're suggesting it, and just let it go. And so then um, I talked to him a little bit later, and he said, I called Mama, you know, and 
And she told me later that he, he called her and said, said that. So um, he told her he loved her. So, and, you know, in my family, just causes and conditions and what they are, it, you know, sadly, that's a very hard thing for him to just say with ease to a woman he's been with for almost 60 years. So, that, you know, that's not easy for me, and yet things are as they are. And that's what moves us into equanimity. You know, because truthfully, what I would want most for my parents before they die is to feel really cherished by each other, to really feel it, not just to like, I know that's true, or get the card at the, at the birthday or the holiday that says, I love you, but to really, really feel it. And um, somewhere maybe they do, but I've also had to just say, you know, this is, this is, the, this is their path. And, and the gift, so it doesn't turn into some kind of righteous, I know better, is, wow, what a reminder to make sure that I tell the people in my life I love them. Because growing up in that family, it also didn't come easy for me. I wasn't trained to say that with so, so much ease. And so I, it's a reminder to me, you know, to, to not, not waste a minute, really. You know, because I don't know. We don't know if we're going to see our dear friend again. You know, it's not morbid. It's really the truth. We really don't know. And if we can hold that somewhere in our understanding, gently but clearly, it will really motivate us to share deeply from the heart. Even if it's a... I love you. And my, it's been very hard for me actually to say to my father, I love you, because it's so all bound up in this sense of shame and, you know, it's weird, but, you know, we, we grow up in certain conditions. And so I do, I, I, I say to myself, go past it, you know, because you're going to lose him too. So, you know, I love you, Dad. Me too. Me too. Sorry to say it to my brother too. So, there's hope. <laughs> if I can say that in my family, there's hope for every single one of us. <laughs> um, so, another poem about compassion for the world from Mary Oliver. This is the title of the poem. Watching a documentary about polar bears trying to survive on the melting ice flows. That God had a plan, I do not doubt. But what if his plan but what if his plan was that we would do better? That's motivation. Compassion is the motivation for us to act in our lives, not out of guilt or shoulds, but the sincere wish to meet suffering and respond to it with a loving heart. And for some of us, that means saying I love you on the phone. For another, it's helping an animal if they're in the middle of the street. You know, for another, it, it, it's whatever manifestation it is in your life. And we must be careful not to hierarch, you know, how our compassion 
expresses itself. For some of us, it's, it's going um, and working to save the polar bears or going to Haiti to help the people there. So compassion's near enemy is pity. Somebody was asking me about that today. Um, It's really interesting to explore this. The far enemy is cruelty. So it's self-explanatory. Pity is interesting. So what's the difference between compassion and pity? Well, pity, if you really explore what's pity, it has um, aversion. Yes, it has a, a repelling, yes, exactly, nature to it. It's, it, there's, there's an aversive quality, and there's a sense of separation. So, you know, um, sometimes you, you know, be walking along or find yourself feeling bad seeing someone in a wheelchair. You know, oh, that poor person. You know, they could be like the Buddha. And, you know, but it's like, that's not me. You know, or if that were me, you know, I wouldn't be able to handle it. Um, a friend of mine, actually a friend of uh, both Arena and myself, uh, has three children, three daughters, and two of them ended up having cystic fibrosis, uh, one of them being diagnosed um, later when she was, uh, I think she was like 11, so there, there had been some cumulative damage to her lungs, um, she, she's a thriving young woman today, but they, they, the, the family is, is dealing with this chronic um, illness of both their daughters that has no cure. And one of the things that she said to me was that she really could not tolerate people's pity, that it was so painful to her. I mean, she had no tolerance for it. As a matter of fact, sometimes she would even misinterpret um, a gesture um, as pity, but she was, it, it so put her into a state of lo- aloneness and fear because it, it, it felt like a message of you're all by yourself and isn't that horrible? Where it, it, it left her with less sense of connection, less access to that support. Um, it was really a good teaching me to hear her describe like the effect of, you know, pity coming towards one. And, you know, it's, it's understandable. We're, we, we're conditioned to, you know, think of ourselves as others. So pity sometimes can be the first thing that arises. So, again, if pity arises, you know, it's something we can explore and actually look underneath and see the aversion in it. So the fourth Brahma Vihara is equanimity. And this is what I want to read what Pema Chodron said about it. Well, let me say things. Equanimity is really learning to open the door to life, inviting life in to visit. And Certain guests, with certain guests, there's fear and aversion. Um, so sometimes all we can do is open the door a crack, just a little crack. Sometimes we need to shut it, and then we try again. We open it a little more. 
Equanimity is the capacity to be with things as they are, without preference. Its near enemy is indifference. Indifference is a, is a turning away, it's a shutting down. Equanimity is an opening to, it's allowing, it's a being with. It's considered, uh, it's, you, the, the, it's called a cool state of mind. It has a temperature of coolness. It's, it's a stilling of the mind. It, it purifies the, uh, the subtle attachments that are in the other Brahma Viharas. It's considered the most refined. And it's a little bit of a misnomer because it holds all of the other Brahma Viharas within it. It's also considered the jumping off place for enlightenment, the ultimate happiness, peace. It even transcends the state of rapture and bliss. It is the opposite of the mind that chooses or that is, is, is mired in the world of grasping and is bound to suffer. Um, we know the suffering. We all know it. We've experienced it in retreat. We've experienced it in our, experienced it in our lives. That suffering of, I want this. Let me try to preserve it. I don't want that. Let me try to get rid of it. You know, We know that that conditioned way of responding to life which we're all working with and learning about, leads to suffering. So equanimity is the opposite of that. It's actually holding the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows with equality, with with a non-preference. So again, it's not indifference, it's not a turning away from life, and it's not a lack of feeling. It's the capacity to be with things as they are and not grasp. So another story. Um, this is a more recent story in my life. My, my spouse, um, we've been together 30 years, and um, her name is Judith. And she's had a challenging year this year with some illnesses, and quite recently actually, um, she was referred to a gynecologist, an oncological gynecologist in Boston, and had to have some surgery. And there was a very, very real question of ovarian cancer. And um, we never know what life's going to bring us. So um, we were preparing for her to go and have the surgery, um, and she. We stayed in a hotel the night before that was right near the hospital. So when she went in, um, you know, nurse affirm said to me, "Look, you know, go back to the hotel, you know, take care of yourself, and and uh, come back." And it was literally right around the corner. She had a, also had a wonderful surgeon who uh, was so kind and loving, and. Uh, a really compassionate human being. We were very fortunate. So I felt really held by his good care, and it was a teaching, sta- a teaching hospital, so the, the staff were wonderful. So you know, I went back to the hotel room you know, just to um, have some breakfast, and, and I knew, actually, at first I thought, oh, I should really stay in the lobby, but I knew wherever I was going, I was going to be you know, practicing 
uh, sending her loving kindness and myself. So I went back to the hotel and, you know, I was doing things to get ready to go back. And, you know, some voice in me just said, like, you need to just sit and, and be with this. And what then arose was this, you know, just feeling of complete terror in my body, like she could have metastasized cancer. She could die. And it was just, just, it was right there. There was no, it was just, that really could be possible. And then the very next, it was like a voice spoke to me and just said very clearly, you have to meet it. You have to meet it. And it was a, it was a fierce and loving voice. And I just sat with that. I just sat with it. And the most extraordinary thing was I, I became very calm. You know, my mind and heart were really calmed. I could feel the strength of all this slogging away on retreats for all these years, you know, of all this, you know, like, oh, I don't know how to do this, and what's wrong, I'll never get it. You know, it's, it's like, there it was. It was just there. It was like, it's like planting a seed, you know, and, 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 the, and the flower just comes, you know, from all of what you put in. And someone, I think it was Rob saying today, you know, you can't, you can't know. And it's so true. You know, we can't, we, we can't trust our evaluations because we don't know. But there it was. And it was, um, I actually felt, you know, as Irina was talking about last night, for us to really reflect on, you know, vir- you know virtue or, 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 you know, I felt the appreciative joy of my practice in that moment. It's like, what a blessing. You know, and just in the next moment, there's that compassion for anyone who doesn't have some place of refuge when they're facing the unknown in their life, the possibility of losing someone or, or actually losing someone. You know, just that immense gratitude for what's been given to me from all my teachers, from my dear friend, you know, from from everyone in life, from you, from students, from our community, you know, just that blessing that could in that moment really hold. And it stayed with me. You know, it stayed with me. I mean, when the doctor walked out of the room, um, you know, it was like the terror came up again. And um, I would be telling you this story perhaps in a different way um, that, you know, she, they did find um, some cancer, but it was contained and, um, and removed, and she doesn't have to have uh, chemotherapy. So she's, she's getting stronger every day. So, um, you know, that's a wonderful, wonderful gift to receive. And, you know, for other people, and tomorrow it could be a different message, you know. We all, we all are subject to loss and gain, the loss of who and what we love most dearly. None of us will be removed from that in our lives. Ten thousand flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter, 
If your mind is not clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. From Mary Oliver again. Who knows the sorrows of the heart? God, of course, and the private self. But who else? Anyone or anything else? Not the trees in their windy independence, nor the roving clouds, nor even the dearest of friends. Yet maybe the thrush, who sings by himself at the edge of the green woods, to each of us, out of his mortal body, his own feathered limits, of every estrangement, exile, rejection, their death-dealing weight, and then, so sweetly, of every goodness also to be remembered. This is the beauty of equanimity that we really can open to and feel. The incredible pulsation of life. We can know that there's pleasure and pain, there's praise and blame, there's loss and gain. There's times in our lives when we're experiencing fame and there's times in our life when we're experiencing disgrace. This is, this is part of the vicissitude of life. Cultivating, this is from Pema, children. Cultivating equanimity is a work in progress. We aspire to spend our lives training in the loving kindness and courage it takes to receive whatever appears Sickness, health, poverty, wealth. She said something else too. (laughs) It's gone now. It's all right. So the near enemy um, to equanimity, as I said, is indifference. Um, I'll tell you one other little story about indifference. It's really, it's kind of a little one, but it makes me bring my grandmother to the table. Um, <clears throat> my nana, this was her dharma teaching for me. So. She just told me this story once about, like, I think it was like her first date. She went to the, some kind of the, you know, the soda shop, you know, the fountain. And the, the guy who took her there said, you know, what do you have? And she said, um, you know, I don't, you know, whatever, I don't care. You know, and so <laughs> he, he said to the soda jerky um, guy, uh, give her and I don't care. And so the the guy who was at the fountain made this drink that was like it had, she said it had 
ginger ale and milk and just, you know, some other things in it. It just made, he made her this drink that tasted awful. And, um, and she told it with this, the great, this great Irish sense of humor, you know. And, uh, you know, I just was, when I was thinking about indifference, I was like, what story do I have for indifference? And that story popped up in my mind. And it just, it just made me think about what was she teaching me in that by telling me that story. And what she was teaching me was that it's okay to want what you want and to say it. You know, for an Irish immigrant, you know, coming from a big, poor family, you know, she probably didn't learn that. She probably didn't learn that. It might have been the first time she was ever in that kind of situation. She might have never been at the soda fountain before. So, you know, indifference is a, is a pulling back. It's a pulling away. It's a disconnection from life, really. And um, that... At, that is not what equanimity is, by any stretch. Its fire enemy is the you know is being caught in attachment and aversion, and you know P.S. I mean that's why I told you the story about what happened today with um, you know seeing Martin in the room. Um, we do get caught in aversion and attachment. You know you don't need to worry about it. It's just going to happen. And it does. And the, the, the gift of practice, remember what the Buddha said, I wouldn't ask you if it weren't possible. The gift of our practice is that we see it more clearly, more and more. We just get less hooked. We get, and we, we're, we're in there less. We're in the reactivity less. That's what happens with practice. It's not like you know, reactivity itself is a problem. You know, we suffer when we get identified with it and think it shouldn't be there. So the freedom is in seeing it and being kind to ourselves. And, and, and the wisdom is understanding that it's not, it's not me. You know? I'm not this bad person who had like a you know, negative thought about my colleague who's a lovely Dharma teacher. In fact, he offered Arena and I last night a little pithy teaching on the Brahma Viharas. Loving kindness is the love that extends. Compassion is the love that responds. Empathetic joy is the love that appreciates. And equanimity is the love that allows. So, that's my offering to you. I would like to end with another poem. from Naomi Shubnai. Some of you, probably a lot of you may know this poem. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, All this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead, by the side of the road. 
how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raised its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Let's sit together. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that raised its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you've been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. for listening.